is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The fictional Western sheriff Walt Longmire will continue solving mysteries for a sixth season, but Netflix has announced that the sixth will be Longmire's last. The strong, silent character lived on the page before he went to the small screen. He is the creation of Wyoming author Craig Johnson, and my conversation with Johnson was one of the most popular of 2016. Today, another chance to hear it. Sheriff Longmire protects a county the size of New Hampshire, one with its fair share of mayhem. We're going to open the conversation with a clip from the TV show featuring Robert Taylor as Walt Longmire and Lou Diamond Phillips as his friend, Henry Standing Bear. I remember when I could count the number of murders in this county on one hand. Do it mostly. I got a multi-billion dollar drug cartel right in my backyard. To progress... It's a cancer, Henry. You know the thing about cancer. By the time you find it, it's often too late. Those words pack a real punch because Walt's wife died of cancer, and the void it leaves in him is a huge part of his character. Author Craig Johnson is with me in the CPR Performance Studio, and welcome to Colorado Matters. Thanks for having me. How would you describe Walt Longmire? Generally, I always try and keep it to uh, just a couple of words. And the one word that immediately comes to mind is over. He's overweight. He's overage. He's overly depressed. But he still gets up in the morning and tries to do the job. And to me, that's, you know, where the true heroism lies rather than in, you know, the usual kind of, you know, crime fiction, you know, protagonist that you see or the, you know, the six foot two of twisted steel and sex appeal. Every woman wants him. Every man fears him. He can kill anyone with a number two Ticonderoga pencil in 3.2 seconds. You know, in case you can't tell, that's the, the, the character that I hate more than any other, like probably in literature and in cinema too. So. Why do you loathe that character so much and embrace the flawed one? You know, it just seems like, you know, we're all kind of flawed. I mean, that's, that's the beauty, you know, of, of being human. And so the, the thought of trying to write, you know, a series of books, you know, or even, you know, just a single book, because when I started off um, with Walt, it was just a standalone book. The Cold Dish was just supposed to be a standalone novel. Um, the idea of, of, of that kind of a, you know, cartoon kind of character just really just didn't interest me at all. I mean, you know, the literature that I really enjoy are, you know, the characters that are damaged, you know, the ones that have um, cracks in the facade. I mean, you know, the the Jean Valjeans, you know, the, those type of characters like that are always going to be infinitely more interesting to me because what made them who they are? How did they become damaged, you know, and how do they deal with that damage as they move through their lives? Um, I just think that it's a lot more of a realistic uh, portrayal of, you know, of a human being. Jean Valjean from Les Miserables. And when did that first book come out? What year was that? Oh, five. Oh, five. So you have lived with this character for more than a decade now. I have. And I can say quite honestly that I'm not like Arthur Conan Doyle and ready to kill, uh, you know, my main character. <laughs> I got to admit that, you know, I mean, because he threw Sherlock off of, a, you know, of a, the Rhinesbeck Falls because he got so sick and tired of him being right all the time and, <laughs> and being narcissistic like that. But, you know, for me, the, the thing is, is Walt's good company. He's actually good company in a number of different ways. He's intelligent. You know, he's compassionate. 
compassionate. He's got a sense of humor, um, you know, all of those things like that. But he's also connected, you know, with his community. He's connected with his society, um, which is, I think, you know, one of the nice things about it. Because there's that fallacy, I think, about, you know, uh, Western culture and that, you know, that a man's got to be a man and everybody takes care of their own. Anybody that knows anything about the West knows that you rely more, you know, on your neighbors, you know, in far-flung regions than anywhere else. I mean, you can you can have a certain anonymity like that if you're living in an apartment building with 500 people in it like that. But if you live in a town of 25 like that, you can pretty much name all of your neighbors off pretty quick. And anybody that's ever gone through, you know, calving or branding season knows that you depend, you know, on your neighbors a great deal. And that's kind of why it was that I made Walt a sheriff was because it's it's the only elected law enforcement official in the United States. I mean, you know, you you you, you have not only do you have to be a police officer, but you have to be a politician to a certain extent. And it makes you much more connected, I think, you know, to the community and to that society whose laws that you're trying to police. You talk about a town of 25. You describe yourself as a cowboy from a town of 25. You cross Wyoming, <laughs> U-C-R-O-S-S. It sounds so perfect for a Western, like, <laughs> don't you cross me. Tell me about you cross and to what extent your own experience, also as a rancher. Right. It's not enough that you're a popular author. Well, you know, I mean, you know, I got to be honest with you. First off, there really aren't 25 people in you cross. You know, my wife and I sat down and did a head count one time while we we're sitting at the kitchen table, and we only came up with 19 people in you cross, including <laughs> the two of us. Like that. And so I think that we're still inflated from the last census, you know, but it, it costs a lot of money to change those signs. Like that. And so we're, we're still, you know, 25, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's the crown jewel of UCLA area. You cross Claremont, Leiter, and Arveda. And, uh, if you combine all of those towns together, you might have a population of about 350, 400. Like, and so it's, it's, it's in many ways, um, very reflective of, you know, Absaroka County, the fictitious County, um, that Walt polices. And, uh, you know, it, it's a pretty fantastic place to be, you know, as a writer like that, because, you know, when I'm down here in Denver, you know, my gosh, there's just so much to do and so much to see. I would be so distracted, I have to admit, like that, that, you know, for me, it works out being in that kind of an isolated kind of area like that. And uh, it's also good for me, too, in the sense that, you know, when you're when you ranch, you know, you really can't ignore the environment. I mean, you're actually a part of that environment, you know, on a full time basis. I mean, the first thing that I do is go down and shovel out the barn first thing in the morning and discuss with the horses what it is I'm going to be riding that day. And they're really great riding partners because they listen very intently, but they don't offer any advice, you know, and so. Um, it's turned out to be, you know, probably one of the, the greatest blessings of my life. Like, as long as I can keep my Connecticut wife there, I'm, I'm pretty much okay. So. Your Connecticut wife. <laughs> so she moved from the East Coast. She did. That is awfully similar to a plot line <laughs> in the books and in the television series. Yeah, yeah. Which is essentially Longmire's deputy mm-hmm. comes to tiny, well, tiny in population, vast in land. Absaroka County, mm-hmm. I think from Philadelphia. She does. And my wife spent the majority of her adult life in Philadelphia. And the more you find out about my personal life, the less impressed you're going to be with my writing ability. Um, this is Vic, by yeah. the way. The <laughs> character Vic. Vic Moretti. Is she, is she based on your wife? She is a great deal based on my wife, like who, uh, who still roots for, let's see, the Phillies, the Eagles, and the Flyers. And if you were ever at our ranch when any of those teams are playing, and usually they don't play up to par, you would hear language that you have never heard before you know, coming out 
out of a woman's mouth, I think. Like, and so one of my favorite quotes is the one from Wallace Stegner on teaching and writing fiction, where he says, you know, the greatest you know piece of fiction ever written is that disclaimer at the beginning of every book that says nobody in this book is based off of anybody alive or dead. I mean, what a crock that is. I mean, that's your <laughs> job, you know, to go find people and put them in your books, you know. And I mean, you know, if somebody stands there and talks with me for like 30 seconds while I'm signing their book, they're taking their literary life in their hands. That's one of the great things, though, about being, you know, where it is that I am, like that in one of these, you know, really open spaces like that, because there are a lot of people, you know, who live in these, you know, far-flung rural areas that, you know, really, it would be difficult for them to live in the more mainstream aspects of society. Like that they live there because they are maybe a little bit different or a little odd or a little more independent and that type of thing. And that that makes for really wonderful characters in novels. Um, Because I don't want, I think if I was writing novels about, you know, people who were living in the same houses, driving the same cars to the same jobs and all of that, I probably would have, you know, quit writing these books 10 years ago. But uh, people always ask where you get the ideas, you know, for the novels. And all I have to do is just, you know, listen, you know, when people tell me stories or, you know, read the newspapers. And uh, and what's nice about that is it also kind of keeps the books grounded in a reality that is, you know, the American West. I mean, I don't ever want to have Wall chasing Al-Qaeda in Crook County or, you know, riding a skateboard or on a, you know, cruise ship or something stupid like that. I want him dealing, you know, with the things that Western sheriffs actually deal with. Well, it can be really unglamorous to be sheriff in a, <laughs> in a place like Absaroka County. At least as you portrayed in the books, to a certain extent, the the TV show as well, because you have to do a lot of grunt work. It's not glamorous at all. No, not at all. Like what, you, what does the job entail? Well, it, inv- it involves everything. It, being a police officer is like being anything else. I mean, you, you're, you're constantly, you know, wondering if you have enough food in the refrigerator to get you through the weekend. Um, you know, do these uniform pants make me look fat? You know, I mean, all those things that everybody else, you know, thinks about at the same time. And so for me, that's one of the things I, I always enjoy getting, you know, trying to get it right, you know, in the books is to make sure that, you know, that these are people first. And it, it, it goes across the board, you know, because uh, there's a large you know, Native American influence, you know, in the books, you know, because Absaroka County is right up there next to the Montana border. Like that. And so you've got the Northern Cheyenne and the Crow Reservation immediately to the north. And, you know, it's important to, to have them be involved because, the, the, you know, they're an important part of that society. Like that. And so it's always important for me to, to include those, those people in my books, but also to make sure that I give them their due, like that, that they're human beings before they are anything else. Yeah. So another really important relationship in the series is Walt's friendship with Henry Stanley. Bear. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're both Vietnam veterans. Henry is Cheyenne. And you know, American Indian characters are, are certainly prominent in your stories because of the, the proximity of the reservations. But there's a long history of white people writing stereotypically about, <laughs> about Indians. So how do you steer clear of that? I go up there. Like, I spend a lot of time up on the res. Like, and, uh, you know, as much as, you know, so many of the characters are in my books are based off of friends and family and neighbors and all of that. I mean, just about every single uh, Indian character um, in my books, you know, is based off of somebody up on the res. Like, and I do say Indian, even though it's not politically correct, because all of my Northern Cheyenne friends make fun of me whenever I try and be politically correct. If and I say, say Native American. Well, if I use the term Native American, they always look at me and go, where were you born? And I always say, well, I was born here in America. So you would be Native American too then, wouldn't you? And so they, 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 sometimes political correctness doesn't get very far on the res. But uh, yeah, for me, uh, you know, I mean, uh, I can go through a long list of all of the characters that are in the books. I mean, you know, uh, Lonnie Little Bird is based off of Charles Little Old Man. Uh, you know, uh, Dina Minicamps is Mandy Smoker Broadus, really good friend of mine. And then, of course, you know, Henry is actually based off of a good friend of mine, Marcus Red Thunder, um, who who 
is, you know, just the epitome of the character of Henry so much so that uh, uh, very much the sense of humor. You know, he, he definitely has the exact same sense of humor that Henry has. <laughs> sense of humor seems important to me because I feel like a lot of uh, Indian characters that I see are not funny. Oh. <laughs> They're, you know... They're wise, maybe. Right. They are stern. Right. Um, well, there are a couple of different ways that you can dehumanize, you know, an entire group of people, and you know, and you can go in different directions. You can either demonize them, or you can, you know, make them, you know, so idealized, like that, that they no longer, you know, represent anything, you know, any kind of a carbon-based life form. So, you know, the trick is trying to, you know, walk the fine line, like that, of, uh, you know, embodying the sensibilities, like uh, the the culture, um, the spirituality, and all that, but still, you know, a Allowing them to be human beings, and I, you know, blame a lot of that, you know, on the books and the motion pictures. I mean, you can count on one hand the amount of motion pictures that have been done where the Indians actually had a sense of humor. And I think the reason for that is is that there's no quicker way to dehumanize a group of individuals as by robbing them of the higher brain functions of humor. Um, then, you know, a lot of times, like you know, Indians are always portrayed as these stoic cigar store how you know kind of characters, and that's not the Indians I know. The Indians I know work on about 17 different layers of irony and if you're not aware of that irony you get to be the butt of that <laughs> irony and so and I have many times like that but uh, you know for me it's 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 important you know to try and capture as many facets you know of them as people um, as you possibly can you know, simply because they are just so absolutely magnificent Western mystery writer Craig Johnson is my guest. His Walt Longmire series inspired the popular TV show, which is now on Netflix. Season five starts later this year. Johnson lives in Ucross, Wyoming, and joined me in the CPR Performance Studio. Coming up, what's in the name Longmire? And Johnson talks about his novel Dry Bones, about murder and dinosaurs. This is Colorado Matters. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. We're listening back to memorable conversations from 2016. And let's return now to my interview with Wyoming mystery writer Craig Johnson. He's the author of the Walt Longmire series about the sheriff of a vast western county. A&E first aired the TV show based on the books. It then moved to Netflix, which says the sixth season of Longmire will be its last. I want to ask you about the name Walt Longmire. Mm-hmm. Longmire, to me, says someone who is mired in something for a long time and, and kind of can't get out. Am I making too much of this name? No, you're right on the money. Um, one of my favorite authors is Charles Dickens. And uh, it seems to me that, like, you know, he always had a, an incredible knack of being able to give his characters names, you know, that described the character, you know, and so... Uriah Heep. Exactly. Yeah, there, there's no end, you know, to all these wonderful names that he could come up with. And uh, and so for me, like, that, it was an opportunity to kind of, you know, give an indication of, you know, what Walt was really going to be like. And so, you know, he is kind of that sadder but wiser sheriff, you know, and the fact that his wife, you know, has died, you know, five years previous, you know, and he's not even aware of how many years it's been. But he's still mired in that sadness, you know, and it'll always be a part uh, of who he is. Like, he'll never, never completely get over that. And so, yeah, so that's, that's one of the, 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 the enjoyments, like, at, for, you know, for me and the readers, like, that is trying to come up with character names that I think will probably be a little bit descriptive. <laughs> the idea for your latest full-length mystery, Dry Bones, mm-hmm. actually came to you in London. Yep. You were at the Natural History Museum there. <laughs> we were. 
One of the fun things was is I actually got to take my granddaughter to, to the Museum of Natural History in London. And uh, we went wandering in there into the, the dinosaur exhibit because she's nine years old. So, of course, she's very interested in dinosaurs, as all nine-year-olds are. And uh, we got there, and uh, there was this Tyrannosaurus rex. And uh, it was, you know, this huge Tyrannosaurus rex in the main hall there. And uh, we walked in, and I looked down on, on the you know, on the plaque, it said that it came from Niobrara, Wyoming, Niobrara County, Wyoming. And so it was interesting to me the next time I was in France, like I was at their Museum of Natural History, and their T-Rex was also from Wyoming. And so I started gathering up information, and a buddy of mine who's a paleontologist explained to me that, well, you know, just about the majority of T-Rexes that are, you know, scattered all over the world and all the museums tend to come from uh, Wyoming. And it was from uh, Copen Marsh, these two paleontologists who pretty much started the science of paleontology uh, the study of dinosaur bones and fossils. And uh, they had this war that went on between them. And I don't know about you, but I've always thought of scientists as being kind of high-minded, you know, better than the rest of us and not given to the petty aspects of human nature, you know, the competitiveness and the quarrelsomeness. And no, they're worse than we are. They're far worse than we are. And they, uh, <laughs> they actually, you know, would actually salt each other's digs, you know, with incorrect bones and oh. do all these horrible things like that oh, it's to like each other. Oh, mixing puzzle pieces. Exactly. That's so yes. Cool. Like, okay. And so, you know, for me, you know, I thought, well, you know, that sounds like a Walt Longmire situation. And so you can't do any kind of study of T-Rexes, you know, without stumbling onto the name of uh, Sue. Uh, which was uh, the, this T-Rex that was actually discovered um, up in the Black Hills region uh, right across the border, you know, just maybe a couple of hundred yards out of the, uh, the borders of Wyoming. And uh, it was kind of interesting because this group, uh, the Black Hills uh, Institute, found what became the largest and most intact T-Rex of all time. Because and female T-Rexes are larger than males. Absolutely. Like that. And uh, it was interesting because, you know, they, they you know, claimed the rights to this. Well, the problem was that it was actually found on a rancher's property, and the rancher claimed the rights to the Sioux. And then they discovered that he was actually an Indian rancher. Um, and then the tribe stepped in and said, you know what, you know, we think it's ours. Like, and then the federal government stepped in and said, no, it's actually all of ours. And so it led to this monstrous litigation that went on, you know, for you know, decades. Um, Perfect and to put a murder in. It sure seemed to me like that, that probably <laughs> there needed to be a murder somewhere in there someplace. And I'm sure that a lot of people were involved, you know, with the case, wanted to murder somebody at some point in time. <laughs> but, uh, but it was another one of those opportunities to just kind of snatch things from the headlines and try and use something to create another Walt Longmire. <laughs> but fascinating to learn about your own state while you're in London and Paris. Oh, yeah. I guess. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> How much research do you do? Because As... your, your books seem to get a lot of details right. <laughs> in Dry Bones, you drop facts about, oh, I don't know, how turtles use their tongues. <laughs> and it really does seem grounded in, in science. These turtles are around a body that's found in a river. Right. It's, uh, it's for me, like, the, you know, the enjoyment is the, of, of being a, an author is the, the, the research portion of the books. Because I'll, I'll be reading about a book, you know, the, the research materials about a year in advance. I, I do a lot of notes like that and do a lot of outlines for the books like that. But it's, it's usually the stuff that I remember um, from all of this research reading that I include in the books because that's that's the sifting process. It's almost like an archaeological dig say. in many ways like that, you know, so I'll find things that I think are interesting, will hold my interest for that year, you know, I think, okay, that's something that's definitely got to be in this book. Um, and that was the same thing with Dry Bones and the, the, the books that I'm, I'm working on now. Tell me about building a mystery. Do you start out knowing, you know, who, who done it mm -hmm. and why done it mm -hmm. and where and when and all of that? Uh, is that revealed to you over time? 
No, I'm not one of those authors. Every once in a while, I'll hear an author. Actually, one of my favorites, Tony Hillerman, used to say, I just start in and see where it goes. That just scares the living daylights out of me. There's no way I'd ever do that. That would be like you and I jumping in my truck out there and saying, let's go to Baltimore, but let's not take a map. I would say, you know, Ryan, why don't we take a map? Even if we don't use it, we, let's have it in the glove box there just in case we do need it. Like that. But uh, you know, for me, it's, it's important because I, I tend to you know, refer to what I write as socially responsible crime fiction. I mean, I'm I'm not really looking to, you know, stack up bodies like cordwood. I'm looking to, you know, have something kind of a message, something to say. And, you know, one of the biggest messages that you're giving away, you know, in a whodunit is who did it. You know, there's a an important message there like that. And, uh, you know, one of the, the, the most wonderful reviews I ever got on my books was somebody wrote that, uh, um, you know, Craig Johnson writes, you know, whodunits for people who by the time they get to the book don't give a damn who did it. Like, and so, mm. you know, for me, it, it's That is really... to say that the, the, the uh, evolving of the story, the characters themselves become just as important oh, as whodunit yeah. or more. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's always going to be a character-driven, you know, piece, you know. And then, you know, that, that kind of you know, social commentary and, you know, and, uh, and, and character commentary like that. I mean, I like to know all of those things before I sit down and start working on that book. I need to know who did it and, and why they did it. it. That immediately came to mind was, uh, to pull a Vivaldi, um, you know, because each one of the books is kind of based in a season. Um, so it takes about four years for me to get through one year of Walt's life, you know. But the nice thing is, is that each one of the books is only about a, a couple of months at the most, you know, apart from the you know the, the previous book. And, you know, that gives you a continuity, I think, like that, that works pretty well with the books. Because I don't know how many times I've read a series of books, you know, and suddenly they'll leap two years. And I'm like, well, what the heck happened in those last mm. two years? You know, I want to know. And so for me, you know, it provides that kind of continuity for the characters and that development. And Walt, it takes me four years to get Walt through one year of his life. And, you know, I, I'm four years older by the time that point comes around. <laughs> so at some point in time, I'm going to be older than Walt. And I don't know how much I like that idea. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Right. You're sort of aging in dog years. I am. Yeah. I am. <laughs> you, you mentioned Tony Hillerman, the great Western mystery writer. I think you met him in Santa Fe because you won an award. I did. Is that right? I did. I'd never, uh, I'd never written a short story in my life like that. And uh, my wife was actually, you know, sitting there with me and uh, at the kitchen table, and she was reading a, a copy of Cowboys and Indians magazine, and she spun it around and slipped it underneath my coffee mug like that. And only people who are married know how much you can ignore the term. You should do that. And uh, <laughs> and I looked at it, and it was a call for submissions to the Tony Hillerman Cowboys and Indians Short Story Award. Like, well, I just turned the magazine back around, slid it back over to her, and said, "Well, I've never written a short story, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that like that." Well, then I went down to the barn, and uh, we've been married long enough that she knows all she has to do is kind of plant the seed of the idea. And so I'm down there shoveling out the barn. And anybody that's ever done that kind of work knows just how much free time you have in your mind when you're doing it. And so I'm shoveling out the barn. And I'm thinking, well, if you were to write a short story, what would you write? So I, I came up with this idea and uh, I wrote it, you know, and sent the darn thing in and promptly forgot about it. And uh, it won. It was a, a kind of a surprise, but it actually won. And uh, one of the things was I actually got to go have dinner with uh, with Tony Hillerman, and it was it was it was like a master's course uh, in mystery writing. Just that one evening of uh, of having dinner with him, and we became kind of fast friends, you know, for those last couple of years of his life. And he became kind of a, a wonderful mentor to me. This story was uh, Old Indian Trick, mm -hmm. which is the first story in the collection of short stories. So you you wrote more. 
I did. It. Mostly, yeah. I did, it wasn't a plan to write more. I got to be honest with you. Um, what happened was, is I had this, this short story and I had a couple of thousand people on a newsletter that I send out every month. And so I thought, you know, the next Christmas came around and I thought, you know what, it'd be kind of nice to just give away that short story to everybody. Just, you know, just give it away like you know, on Christmas Eve. And so I did. I just fired it off to everybody that was on the newsletter list. And uh, I don't think I realized how much trouble I was making for myself until the next Christmas rolled around and, and everybody, everybody started, waiting. yeah, waiting for uh -huh. the next Christmas story. Like, And I was like, oh, I haven't written one. Maybe I guess better sit down and write one. Like, and so I, I guess I've, I've written one, you know, one a year like that for the last 12 years. As a Christmas tradition. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're collected in, in this uh, book, Wait for Signs. Uh, old Indian Trek is really, really funny. Can I <laughs> give you. it away? Sure, 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 sure. You can give it away. Oh, yeah, sure. It's 12 um, stories. Giving away one won't make that big One twelfth of the yeah, book. Yeah, that's right. right. Um, I mean, what makes it so funny is that a crime has taken place um, at a diner, mm -hmm. and the person who held the diner up, I guess to bide his time before he he does the stick up, pretends that he's applying for a job, mm -hmm. and sits in and fills out a job application, holds the place up. You know, everyone is uh, crazed about trying to find him and, and <laughs> identify who this guy is. And one of your characters thinks to look mm -hmm. at the end of the story. At the application. At the job application. Mm -hmm. And it's got his name and his address and his phone number. The and idiot criminal <laughs> has written it all down. He has, but just by accident. Like, and so Lonnie Littlebird actually comes across that information before anybody else does, but he tries to play it off as an old Indian trick. Um, tries to portray it as like you know, some kind of like special, you know, connection that he has, you know, that he's able to surmise, you know, where this guy lives and what his name is and everything. Do you assume criminals are stupid or smart? <laughs> well, you know, if they wanted to work hard, they probably would go get a job like that. And so I, I think one of the things is, is an awful lot of the time, uh, you know, as a police officer, many times you know, you're waiting for your professor Moriarty who doesn't show up. And uh, an awful lot of the times, you know, you're, you're, you're dealing with people who are desperate, you know, and sometimes make some you know, pretty foolish mistakes. And so that's just, you know, part of the, the aspects of the job that I think don't ever get covered an awful lot of the time, you know, because in, in crime fiction, you always want, uh, you know, somebody who's going to be, you know, a, a good antagonist to your character. I mean, one of my favorite uh, uh, phrases is that uh, the Northern Cheyenne have a belief that uh, you can judge a man by the strength of his enemies like that. And uh, fortunately, in that particular situation, Walt wasn't you know, challenged a great deal. But right. uh, there are plenty of other opportunities for him to be challenged as the books move on. <laughs> You talk so fast. Have you ever done auction auction work? <laughs> no, no. I you know, I just uh, I don't know. I've got in the habit of doing that. I don't know. I okay, guess I'm, try I'm, I'm just... trying to get as much in on the show as possible. I here guess before so. We... <laughs> but I can hear you auctioning off your own cattle. Oh no, no, no! Okay. I'm too tongue-tied for that. All right. <laughs> Craig Johnson is author of the Walt Longmire mystery series. Our conversation is a 2016 favorite. Coming up, does Johnson now picture actor Robert Taylor when he writes? Taylor plays Sheriff Longmire in the Netflix show. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. At the end of 2016, we are re-airing conversations that stood out to us and to you. One of the most popular was with Wyoming author Craig Johnson, who writes the Walt Longmire mystery series. His books inspired the Netflix show Longmire. Let's talk about the adaptation of Longmire for television. The series began on A&E. It's now on Netflix. I guess I want to understand how your stories are adapted for TV. Obviously, the show has its own writers. Mm -hmm. So to what extent do they rely on your stories as, you know, the Bible and adapt them? To what extent are their liberties taken? 
Well, it, it varies. Like, you know, there are some episodes that are taken almost completely from some of the books, but it's very difficult, especially in those first couple of years, you know, when we were on basic cable, because, you know, we were kind of harnessed into that 42 minute cable format. And that it's, it's very difficult. I was very happy whenever the producers told me, they said, it's very, you don't write books that are easily encapsulated in a 42 minute format. And I'm, I'm kind of proud of that, to be honest with you. Yeah, I can understand. And, uh, and so what they do is a lot of times they'll take bits and pieces, sometimes even the smallest pieces of the books and they'll take off and do an entire episode based on those. And then there are also, you know, storylines that they have to come up with um, all on their own like that, because uh, I think I had written seven novels um, whenever Warner Brothers got in touch with me. That was kind of a, a mindset, you know, that I had to change a little bit because I'd always, you know, hoped, you know, that uh, that maybe, you know, the first novel, The Cold Dish, would end up being a, uh, a feature film like that. But, you know, I knew what the odds against it, you know, were. I don't know. I mean, it, it seems like an awful lot of the time, um, if it's a, you know, a storyline that deals with more mature themes like that, you know, that's not about space vampires or something, you know, the movie lasts about maybe a week, you know, in the movie theaters and then it's gone, you know, and in the bargain bin at the discount stores. And so I didn't know how much good that was actually going to do me as an author, because, you know, in the final analysis, you know, I'm a, I'm a cowboy writer in a town of 25, like, and I'm look, not looking to move to either LA or New York. And so for me, it's always about, you know, visibility for the books. And I started thinking, well, you know what, a TV show you know, is up there every week, you know, and that might, you know, draw in a little bit more of an audience over a period of time. And as it turned out, you know, we actually became the highest rated scripted drama in the cable network uh, that we were on uh, in their history, which was, you know, kind of wonderful. And then when they took it into their heads, you know, to actually cancel the highest rated scripted drama that they ever had, we <laughs> were marvelous enough like that, that, that Netflix kind of stepped in the 600 pound gorilla in the room and said, we'll take this from here. And so, you know, we've been trending on Netflix and it's been a pretty wonderful success on Netflix too. And that allows you to have a fuller, something closer to a full hour. It does. It and does. And you watch those and you can pause and you can go back. And so I suppose that means that the episodes don't have to stand alone so much. Exactly. It, it can be more serial. Exactly. And that, that, that's really been kind of wonderful to see like that because uh, going from like, you know, cable episodes, it's almost now as if they're almost these miniature movies um, on Netflix, which is really kind of nice because it really gives the actors and the directors and the producers, uh, the writers and everybody a little bit more room to breathe. You started our conversation by describing Walt Longmire as overaged, overweight, overworked something <laughs> but robert taylor who plays him is kind of a hunk you know, he like, is he is he's uh he, he's you know I, I haven't had very many like you know female viewers complain about robert taylor i have to say quite honestly that they you know they they, they seem to enjoy his portrayal like that and uh, i think we know a lot of times you know it's it's going to be a different kind of dynamic um you know what works you know in a book doesn't necessarily work you know in a television show and i think i was kind of open to the idea that they were going to have to make some changes like and I remember discussing with the producers uh, Greer Shepard and Hunt Baldwin John Coveney like that and uh, one of the first conversations I had with them they said you know well we're thinking about making Walt and Henry about 10 years younger than they are in the books and I had the immediate horrible redneck cowboy author response where I was like well now why are we doing that and they said well because we'd really like the show to run for about 10 years and we'd rather not have them on walkers by the time we get to the end <laughs> and I had a hard time arguing with the logic of that it seemed to make a lot of sense like and so uh 
that kind of led, you know, to some some interesting casting developments. And then it was also interesting to me too because I I talked with a lot of authors who'd had you know things done in Hollywood, and uh, it's like any other industry. I mean, it's always going to you know, depend on who it is that you're you know you're working with as to the quality of of that relationship. You know, and I, I was I've been very very fortunate, and the people that I'm working with are just really extraordinarily concerned about you know the the timber um, of the television show that it, it captured the feel of the books, you know, in the sense of the books. And even to the point where they actually sent me DVDs of the auditions for the actors, you know, that they were looking at. And that was just kind of crazy like that because I just, you know, I didn't think in any way, shape or form that I was going to have to, you know, look at actors and see, you know, who it was that, you know, that they were you know thinking of using. And certainly I didn't have, you know, final say over who it was that they were going to cast. But I was very fortunate in the sense that just about every single actor that I wanted actually got the roles. And uh, my wife and I are sitting there, you know, at the ranch, you know, watching these DVD auditions, you know, that came from Warner Brothers. And uh, I remember, you know, looking at Robert Taylor, you know, when he was doing the audition for Walt. And, you know, there were a couple of things I really liked about him. Like he was a big guy. He's rangy. Um, he had lines on his face. He looked like he had miles on him. He looked like he had actually, mm-hmm. you know, done something, you know, for a living, you know, and he had, you know, Robert actually had, you know, a number of different careers. <clears throat> but um I was just amazed by the, the, the audition that he had. The thing that kind of sealed the deal for me was is that uh, he took his hat off, you know, in the audition. It's a you know, part where he's going into this woman's house. He's never met her before. He doesn't know her like that. And he actually took his hat off when he met her. And I thought, this is probably our guy. And so I was kind of on board with Robert Taylor at that point in time. But it was about then that, you know, my wife sitting behind me at the kitchen table said, oh, my. And I turned around and looked at her and she says, he's handsome. (laughs) And so I'm looking at Robert Taylor and looking at her and she goes, he's kind of like a TV version of you, taller, better looking with a better voice. So I'm not as big of a fan of Robert Taylor as I used to be. But, you know, other than that. And the act of him taking off his his hat, that politeness, yeah, is it, what made you think, oh, this this is someone who's really thought about. Well, and it's just it goes back to a term that, like you know, is really kind of you know in, in modern society lost a lot of its impact, you know, but it's uh, decency. You know, he's a decent guy. Like that, he cares about the people that are in his county. Um, he's not, you know, uh, uh, boisterous. You know, he's not, you know, uh, outspoken or anything like that. But he he cares about people. And, uh, and, and in many ways, you know, that's, that's one of the best aspects, um, of a good police officer is that they care and they care about people and they want to make sure that they're okay. And, and a lot of times when I was talking, uh, cause I do a lot of, a lot of interviews and a lot of conversations, you know, with retired older sheriffs like that. And, uh, the term that I kept hearing from a lot of these older sheriffs was my people, my people, you know, and, uh, they, they really consider, you know, those people that live in their County to be a responsibility of theirs personally. And, uh, and, and that's, that's kind of speaks to the embodiment of who Walt is. Mm. And to convey that in a single gesture in an audition. Mm. Of course, now you're writing books and there is uh, an embodiment of, of Walt Longmire <laughs> on TV. Oh, yeah. So do you picture him as Robert Taylor or do you picture him as whatever you pictured him before Robert Taylor came along? Let me tell you, I can give you one instance to give you an idea of how difficult that is. I was actually doing a, uh, a bookstore out on Sunset Boulevard, you know, whenever the TV show was just starting. And right across the street from the bookstore where I was doing my event was an eight-story Walt Longmire. There was Robert Taylor on the side of a building, like eight <laughs> stories high, watching me do this, you know, book event, you know, in this little bookstore in Los Angeles. And, and uh, you know, it, it's a powerful medium. It's an incredibly powerful 
powerful medium. But I have to admit that, um, I mean, I'd written about seven books, you know, before, you know, Warner Brothers got in touch with me. And so, you know, so many of the characters were so embedded um, in my head because so many of them were based off of friends and family and neighbors and these people I'd worked with that, no, they're, they're pretty much, you know, so strong in my head that, that the actors are wonderful, but they really don't encroach all of that much. The show is not shot in Wyoming. No. Where is it shot? Actually down in New Mexico in and around uh, Santa Fe. Um, one of the, the interesting things is, of course, like the, the, you know, when you film a show like Longmire, um, it's not like a feature film. So it's not like they can fly in and um, film for like three days with all of their equipment, all their crews, and then they're gone. It's kind of like maneuvers of the Eighth Army. Um, you know, Longmire films for like three to four months. And so, you know, it is like an occupying army when they come in like that. And so they basically need all of the resources that really are not available in Wyoming. It's one of the difficulties that we have there and that we don't have sound stages. We don't have crews. We don't have a lot of those things. The other thing is, is they start filming in March. And uh, anybody that's ever been in Wyoming in March knows that that could sometimes be, you know, a little bit difficult, you know, especially <laughs> since the majority of the show is filmed out of doors. You know, it's kind of the the, the joy of the show is, is that, you know, it's, it's a, a lot of it is filmed out of doors. It's not filmed inside like that. And so uh, New Mexico has a very aggressive um, film commission. And so, you know, they did have all of those advantages. So that's that's where we ended up was in New Mexico. Because they lured Breaking Bad and In Plain Sight as well. Um, it does does New Mexico pass well for Wyoming? Uh, you know, they do a pretty good job like that because they, they we sent them like about 3,000 photographs um, of that whole area up there around the Bighorn Mountains near the Montana border like that and down on the Powder River country and all of those places. And they did a pretty magnificent job of, uh, of of discovering places that you know could really you know pass for Wyoming. How well do ranching and riding go hand in hand, and and how much ranching do you get to do? Not as much as I used to. Like that, I mean, always you know when you live in a ranching community, if you've got a horse and a rope and a saddle, you know you've got you know a part time job, you know being able to help out as much as possible, you know with your neighbors. But uh, you know, I, I think I figured it out. You know, I think whenever um, Spirit of Steamboat actually was uh, was it was the first state read for the state of Wyoming, one book Wyoming. And, uh, and I, I went around to, you know, pretty much every library in Wyoming because I have a standing deal with all the libraries in Wyoming that my honoraria is a sick pack of Rainier beer, you know, cans preferred. And so I've done just about every, all 63 libraries in Wyoming. But that year, I think I figured out that I was on the road for about 202 days out of the year. And so I was starting to feel a little bit like a fuller brush salesman, but it was, you know, it was, it's one of the joys of, you know, of, of writing the books is actually being able to go out and, you know, and meet the people, you know, that are reading the books, you know, not only here in the U.S., but also all over the world where the books have been translated. And so how much time does that leave for ranching? Can you get, um, can you get ranching done in a hundred days? Not much. Like, not much at all. Like, I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's down to horses now. Like, a, you know, a cow-calf operation, you, it's like any other business. You pretty much have to be there and working like at all the time and keep an eye on it. And you certainly can't be gone for that amount of time and keep that up. But, you know, like I said, you know, it's still an operable ranch and I still, you know, go out and ride. I still am able to go down and, and, you know, one of the biggest, you know, moments for me, of course, at every night, like whenever I put the horses in, like to feed them is to come out and just stand there and look up the sky, like and see that thick belt of, you know, the Milky Way, you know, that stretches all the way from horizon to horizon. 
you know, the crow refer to that as the hanging road. Um, and it's the, it's the road that the owls take, you know, and the, the souls take to go back and forth between the camp of the dead and this world. And, you know, for me to, you know, to, to be able to stand there outside the barn every night and just look up and see those stars. And, you know, I, I think I'm alone like that, but pretty soon there's always a gang of horses with their heads on my shoulders, you know, as I'm watching too. Thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Ryan. Craig Johnson, author of the Walt Longmire series. It inspired the TV show Longmire. Netflix has announced the sixth season will be its last. That interview was a highlight of 2016 for Colorado Matters, and you can hear others at CPRnews.org. Click Conversations We Can't Forget. Next, a trip to Rocky Mountain National Park to meet a man who spent decades welcoming visitors from around the world into his home. Yes, his home in the park. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. 2016 was a record breaker for Rocky Mountain National Park. More than 4.4 million visitors. That's nearly 300,000 more than last year. Part of the reason warm weather kept Trail Ridge Road open longer. 2016 was also the year we learned about something unusual in the park, a little chunk of privately owned land just inside the northernmost entrance. It's home to 14 cabins that, for decades, hosted visitors from all over the world. CPR's Rachel Estabrook met the longtime caretaker as he prepared to close the screen doors for the last time. The story of Cascade Cottages is really a love story, but it wasn't always love at first sight, like when caretaker Richard Sipe arrived as a visitor in 1987. As I recall, the, the mattresses were pretty lumpy, <laughs> and the, the decor was not the best, but um, hey, they were cabins. We understood that. Sipe was a widower, and when he came back for a weekend a few years later, he met Grace Davis. Her parents owned the place. We were both from Wichita. I asked her if she wanted to go out to dinner on Saturday night, the last night we were here. She said yes. And so um, we went went to dinner to Dunraven, and she asked me later, she says, how did you know that was my favorite restaurant? And I said, Well, that was the only one I knew where it was. (laughs) They got hitched the next spring. When Grace and I got married, she said, do you know what I do in the summertime? And she had spent every summer out here as a child. Grace Davis's father had just passed away, so she and Richard took over. They replaced the mattresses, and the cabins got a makeover. For a few years, they moved back and forth to Kansas. We both retired in 1994, so we got to spend all our time out here. Grace and I had 24 wonderful years, and uh, she passed away on opening day in 2014. Opening day for the cabins that year. Yes. Mm-hmm. I see you're wearing your Kansas University Jayhawk sweatshirt. Still got that Kansas pride. Uh, she bought this for me. <laughs> Richard Sipe has loved the slow, simple life managing Cascade Cottages. Each day in the summer, he checked in guests. We would have a little map of the cottages. And if they're in cabin 13, you just take a little dirt road in the second cabin on the riverside. And that's it. We head out to see it. So this is number 13, which has a beautiful picture window out toward Fall River. But you can see that the flies 
are attracted by the, the warmth. The hand-built cabin has two rooms and no frills, except for a ceiling fan, which is the most modern thing in here. The cabin was built soon after World War II. Several others on the property are even older. Do you have a favorite spot here? My favorite spot is in cabin three, which is where Grace and I reside. It's just a small cabin. It's a one-room cabin, but that's the only cabin in the whole complex that has a bathtub. (laughs) And that's for Grace. This property, which is over 40 acres, was in private hands long before Rocky Mountain National Park was established. Grace Davis's parents bought it in 1941. I asked Richard why his in-laws were interested. Mr. Davis was a conservationist. He loved the outdoors. And his philosophy was that he wanted to be a friend of man and live by the side of the road. And he truly fulfilled that obligation. He wanted to be a friendly man. And the family held it for 76 years, but they also decided, you know, since they have their own lives, they cannot maintain the thing, and I don't know what God has planned for me, we decided to move the property on. Well, we could honestly make a good conscientious decision. The family is selling the property to the park thanks to a promise that the Davises made years ago that whenever they were ready to sell, the park would get the first opportunity to buy. Larry Gamble is planning chief for Rocky Mountain National Park. I am so thankful for the family and honoring the commitment that apparently was just a handshake between L.V. Davis and whoever was the superintendent at the time. I, I don't even know who that was. The park needed help to pay the $3.5 million price tag, and they got it from two conservation groups, the Rocky Mountain Conservancy and the Trust for Public Land. Larry Gamble recognizes that the sale means the end of an era. I can totally understand, you know, the incredible connections to this place. It's surrounded by Rocky Mountain National Park, so it's brought a lot of people here to an incredible setting and generations of attachments. And I can understand the sense of loss. And I think what we do offer is that it will be preserved for future generations to come and enjoy. But he can't say what the park will do with the land or whether the cabins will stay up. The sense of loss Larry Gamble describes comes through when you talk to Dick Aldrett. I first came to Cascade Cottages when I was five years old, in 1952. Dick Aldrich's memories of Cascade Cottages are sensory, like crawling into sheets hung up to dry on a clothesline. They just smelled like the day. They smelled like the fir trees and the snow and the air and the flowers and the elk. And uh, the totality of this whole place was in those sheets when you put them on the bed. He stopped by on the day I visited to say hi to Richard and share some cinnamon buns. We sat down in the main office. It has a small rustic kitchen in the back, a bedroom off to the side, and a big living room with an old piano and some plush chairs. What are your earliest memories of being here and maybe being here with the Davis girls? In this room, this is the way it was every night. 
guests would come in and Mrs. Davis would make cookies and this room would be filled with 10 or 20 people just telling their stories. And they were from Africa and Australia and Europe, an array of the most interesting, fascinating people from all over the world sitting right here. And, you know, we, we all have a story to tell. You felt like you were home. And uh, amazing. I'll miss them all. Richard, you just closed up the cabins for the last time in the past couple of weeks. Yes. We're, we're closing them down. Uh, we're putting them to sleep, uh, draining all the water lines. We'll sweep all this off and get all these pine needles out of here. Yeah. And we'll do the laundry, hang them on the lines, dry them, and that's it. That'll be the last time. If you know anybody who wants a Maytag washer, let me know. A Maytag washer from what, 1950? Well, this probably this is a 45 model, and it still works, so we're thankful. I asked Richard if there's anything he'll take from the cabins when he leaves. He says no, it's more about the memories. But as I'm leaving, I snap his photo in front of a sign that hangs outside, pointing the way to the office where he sat for so many years. I'd like to take that, he says with a smile, nodding at the sign. I don't think the Park Service is going to mind. I'm Rachel Estabrook, CPR News. That story was a 2016 favorite, and you can listen to others at CPRnews.org. Click Conversations We Can't Forget. One more thing we can't forget, the late Debbie Reynolds as Colorado's Molly Brown in the movie musical The Unsinkable Molly Brown. Reynolds died Wednesday after suffering a stroke. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.